What a humiliating weekend for the BBC. The unfolding train wreck began on Friday night when after Gary Lineker's suspension, every possible match of the day host pulled out of doing the show. That was followed by every host from other BBC football shows and every football commentator pulling out of their weekend duties and 18 Premier League clubs announced their players would not be speaking to the BBC. Under pressure, on Saturday, the BBC Director General was wheeled out to issue this apology. I'm very sorry for the disruption today. It's been a difficult day and I am sorry that audiences have been affected and they haven't got the, the programming. As a keen sports fan, I know, uh, like everyone, that to miss programming is a real blow and I am sorry about that. You're questioning his impartiality, but there are lots of people who are questioning yours. Uh, they are saying that you buckled under, under pressure from the UK government, the Conservative Party, of which you were once a member, an official, and the right-wing press to take action against Gary to take action against Gary Lineker. Is that true? Is it the UK government, the right-wing press, all of that, that made it different for you this time? This absolutely not. Anyone who knows me, by the way, knows that we are in the BBC and myself are absolutely driven by a passion for impartiality, not left, right, or pandering to a particular to party. To say, I support your migrant policy. I back it, it's brilliant. He would be taking an opinion. Would you have removed him from air? From the air? I'm not going to go through. But, but it's a I'm not going to go through all the hypotheticals of the past. <laughs> I'm not going to go through hypotheticals because they probably wouldn't make me look very good. The whole point of having some regulations is you should be able to go through hypotheticals, right? If, if you can't say what the situation would have been, if it was slightly different, you probably don't have particularly clear rules. Um, there were numerous calls for Davy to resign this weekend, but he has so far kept his job though he has well and truly folded. The BBC released this statement from Tim Davey this morning. Everyone recognises this has been a difficult period for staff, contributors, presenters, and most importantly, our audiences. I apologise for this. The potential confusion caused by the grey areas of the BBC's social media guidance that was introduced in 2020 is recognised. I want to get matters resolved and our sport content back on air. He goes on to say this. We are announcing a review led by an independent expert reporting to the BBC on its existing social media guidance with a particular focus on how it applies to freelancers, outside news and current affairs. The BBC and myself are aware that Gary is in favour of such a review. Shortly, the BBC will announce who will conduct that review whilst this work is undertaken. The BBC's current social media guidance remains in place. Gary is a valued part of the BBC and I know how much the BBC means to Gary, and I look forward to him presenting our coverage this coming weekend. Um, the BBC released a statement from Tim Davey and Gary Lineker sort of on the same page. So it was very notable um, that Gary Lineker's statement was a lot shorter. Um, he said simply this, I am glad that we have found a way forward. I support this review and look forward to getting back on air. Um, so obviously lots of praise for Gary Lineker from Tim Davey's statement. Gary Lineker's statement, pretty curt. Um, he did say more on his personal Twitter account, though. Um, so he tweeted this this morning. After a surreal few days, I'm delighted that we have navigated a way through this. I want to thank you all for the incredible support, particularly my colleagues at BBC Sport, for the remarkable show of solidarity. Football is a team game, but their backing was overwhelming. I've been presenting sport on the BBC for almost three decades and am immeasurably proud to work with the best and fairest broadcaster in the world. I cannot wait to get back in the match of the day chair on Saturday. 
And he goes on, a final thought, however difficult the last few days have been, it simply doesn't compare to having to flee your home from persecution or war to seek refuge in a land far away. It's heartwarming to have seen the empathy towards their plight from so many of you. We remain a country of predominantly tolerant, welcoming and generous people. Thank you. Um, so you can see that Gary Lineker is still going to be talking about politics, potentially less party politics. That remains to be seen. But so far, Tim Davey has apologized. Gary Lineker has essentially said, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, and Tim Davey, all he can confirm is Gary Lineker will continue to follow the social media guidelines. And Gary Lineker, of course, maintains he's always followed the social media guidelines. For his part, Tim Davey gave another interview to his colleagues this morning where he faced more questions about the politics of the row. There are many people and all they see here is a Conservative Director General and a Conservative Chairman bowing to pressure from Conservative MPs and the Conservative press. I can tell you, anyone who knows me knows that, yes, 30 years ago, some political involvement, but absolutely not affected by pressure, from one party or the other. That is not how we work editorially in the BBC. Um, it's a convenient narrative, it's not true. And the impartiality guidelines would be equally applied in terms of being people critical of the left or the right. The issue is getting involved in party political matters and we apply that independently. I would, I would note, David, that one of the things that I think the BBC does, and this interview is a demonstration, is it goes after these stories without fear or favor. And I would ask the journalists around you and all the people in the BBC, they are not under that pressure and they shouldn't be. And that's how we should work. BBC journalists are not under any pressure to go light on the government or to follow the political persuasions of the leadership of the organization. Now that doesn't accord particularly well with what Lewis Goodall suggested last week when he said he knew he was under constant pressure from Robbie Gibb, um, so that was the former advisor to Theresa May, now on the board. And he said that when he was working for Newsnight, always there were rumors going on, Robbie Gibb is watching your coverage and he's not particularly happy with it. Um, Ash, this is all intensely embarrassing. I suppose many things to say. One of them is that if, if the general public didn't know that Tim Davey was formerly a Tory candidate, they probably do now, right? I mean, I think that's what explains the climb down by the BBC, because going as far as suspending Gary Lineker, um, going through with a weekend's worth of football coverage without a single football pundit, with severely uh, restricted broadcast on radio as well, that goes to show how far they were willing to dig their heels in. So I think what this vault fast represents isn't that they've suddenly realized that Gary Lineker's uh, tweet was within the impartiality rules that sports contributors are bound by. It's because ultimately it became more embarrassing for the BBC for attention to then be focused on all the ways in which, as an organisation, it is in the pocket of the Conservative Party. So number one, Tim Davey, the Director General, he didn't just have some involvement in politics, like a local party member or activist, he was a Conservative councillor. Um, you've got, of course, Richard Sharp, who helped facilitate an £800,000 loan for former Prime Minister Boris Johnson and then magically became chair of the BBC. I mean, the longer this row went on, 
the more impossible it was for the BBC to maintain a position that its own uh, record is impeccably impartial. And it was only Gary Lineker that had dragged that good name into disrepute because, of course, it wasn't just looking at the behaviour of fellow presenters, like, for instance, Alan Sugar. We're talking about BBC top brass here, Tim Davey, Richard Sharp, and, of course, Robbie Gibb as well. So I think that's what explains the climb down here. Um, I think that it was a very unstrategic fight for them to pick, Um in terms of not just the BBC top brass who were responsible for suspending him, but the right-wing press uh, and the Conservative benches as well. It's hard to think of a figure apart from maybe David Attenborough, who's more universally loved than Gary Lineker. He's one of the most recognisable sports pundits in the world, uh, not just the UK. And People adore him. And not just that, but football is really as close as we get to a state religion that everybody enjoys in this country. And you can fuck with many things. You can decimate our hospitals. You can slash public services. You can pour rivers of effluence into our seas. But don't fuck with football. Um, I think that what we saw was a display of hubris by the right-wing press and by right-wing politicians and going for Gary Lineker, uh, forgetting that actually they don't just simply defy political gravity, that people do value things like football at the weekends and that you will be in deep trouble if you imperil their enjoyment of it. Though I did think it was very funny that you had all of these conservative MPs and a few right-wing journalists as well pretending that match of the day was better uh, without any pundits uh, or commentary going, oh, at last we've seen one with all the goals in. It's like, you've never watched this program before in your life. Um, so that was funny. Anyway. I, I want to talk about the sort of element of this, you know, it, it, it kind of was a wildcat strike, right? So you, you had management persecute a worker essentially. And then all their colleagues said, well, if they can't come to work, we're all walking out. Now, you know, if that had happened in many workplaces, the bosses, you know, would legally be able to fire everyone because, you know, it hadn't been a ballot. It wasn't a sort of legal strike. It was a wildcat strike, which means, you know, an off-the-cuff sort of spontaneous strike. Are there lessons we can learn here or is it just so unique that these are sort of, these are all incredibly rich and famous, powerful people and this is football television? You know, is that, can, it, does this show us that wildcat strikes work or can we not really sort of learn lessons from this and try and superimpose them onto other areas of, of working life? Well, look, I think the generalizable rule is that solidarity gets the goods, whether that is through formal trade union organization or a wildcat strike, that is the best leverage you have over management. But I don't necessarily think that every single wildcat strike will go as well as this particular one. I think that there are some unique things at play. So number one, as I mentioned, the central part that football plays in our national life to the fact that these are very rich, very famous individuals. Three, that obviously the people who were responsible for suspending Gary Lineker did not do any power mapping as well, because it's not as if he'd have to, you know, run a ballot and go through all these bureaucratic processes. He might not even have had to make the request directly to fellow pundits like Alex Scott or Ian Wright or Alan Shearer. Um, I think all of them know that to be seen to be undermining mm -hmm. Gary Lineker of all people would 
ruin their careers and their reputations possibly forever. I have no doubt that they were also motivated out of a very deep sense of right and wrong. But even if they weren't, it would have been a really stupid thing. And I think finally, you know, the BBC is being outcompeted for football by Sky, by BT Sport, by Amazon, who are now getting in on the action. And there is a vast amount of money being thrown around in order to attract top uh, pundit talent. So the BBC, in terms of its uh, news coverage, has already seen an exodus of uh, talent like Emily Maitlis, Lewis Goodall, John Sopel, Andrew Neil, even, who've gone elsewhere because, quite frankly, they can make more money than at the BBC. You know, there are other things. They're not so bound by rules of impartiality. They feel they've got more of a voice. But the money is there, right? And if the BBC were to uh, lose, I think that, you know, creme de la creme of pundit talent, considering how few rights they have uh, for the game, I think it could be absolutely catastrophic for them. Because here's something which almost every media giant always forgets. The most powerful part of their output, the most popular part of their output, the most monetizable part of their Mm -hmm. output, it's not politics content, it's not new and original dramas, it's sports. So for instance, just recently, Disney Plus lost an absolutely astonishing number of paying subscribers. Why? Because they'd lost the rights to cricket. So if you endanger your sports coverage, if you endanger your sports outlay, you're actually really deeply fucking yourself as a media organization. So I think that that makes this case somewhat unique. Generalizable rule though, solidarity works. No, we're going to go on to one other element of this story, some of the interventions that have been made. Ash, very quickly, Tim Davey, is he going to have to resign? Ooh, I don't know. I think one of the things is, is that the very quick resolution after a weekend of chaos might have been enough to save him. And I'm not sure that you're going to see pressure being kept up externally in the media anymore. When you had Gary Lineker um, being suspended. It was a great time for Attack the BBC stories. But I think I think Tim Davey might have done enough to save his neck. But look, I'm always wrong about stuff. Don't take my predictions for anything. You're doing yourself down, Ash. I'm sure your predictions are very much up to scratch. I'm, I'm not going to, I've got no idea if he's going to resign or not. Let's talk about something we do know. Gary Lineker's suspension has prompted loads of excoriating attacks on the BBC and the Tory government. One of the most memorable was this from former England player John Barnes. You've said that you're 100% behind Gary Lineker. Why is that? Well, first of all, there are two issues. I was listening to the gentleman before. In terms of impartiality, I don't know when the BBC have ever been impartial. In fact, BBC's reporting on the Qatar World Cup was anything but impartial. So it seems that they want to pick and choose when they want to be impartial. Criticising others or criticising other countries or other political parties or other religions seems to be okay. But of course, if you then criticise what goes on in this country, then it seems that they will then come out with this impartiality rule. The second thing, which a lot of people took um, offence to, is, is the perception that Gary was, was equating um, Britain to, to Nazi Germany, which he wasn't. What he said was the language used regarding the refugees is similar to the language used in 1930s Germany, which it was. And of course, we can see how that ended up. And Gary is not saying, I'm not saying that that's how it's going to end up. But of course, the language used in terms of creating this perception of an unworthy refugee, very much like the Jews were unworthy 
um, to be German and Germans were better than Jews. That was the language that was used. And that's what we're saying here. We're talking about the, 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 the refugees coming over and the language used towards the refugees coming over on boats in terms of them being rapists, in terms of them being criminals, is different to the refugees from the Ukraine. And that is what we have to, to, to address. And that is what I'd want Gary and everybody supporting him to talk about. Us talking about the worthiness of different groups of people, because that's how discrimination starts. That was really interesting. So John Barnes there putting forward a defense of using analogies such as the language being used now and language in the 1930s. Ash, it's a debate that seems to keep recurring in, in British politics. I think it's because of Twitter, right? And potentially also because of the row surrounding the Labour Party over the last few years. Should 1930s analogies be made about language? Should we not compare something which is distinct and different in its horror to what we're seeing now? I mean, do you have any strong, strong feelings here? Yeah, I do. I do have really strong feelings here. I mean, look, first, and to put this right at the top, I'm not in favor of gratuitous comparisons with the Nazis or with 1930s Germany's, like simply to discredit your political opponents. All right. I think that's wrong. But I think that this comparison was far from gratuitous. You're looking at an immigration bill which would detain or deport asylum seekers if they don't come through regular means. And there aren't many safe or legal routes. Uh, the ones that exist are highly, highly limited to specific countries. So if you're from, I don't know, Eritrea, tough luck. If you're from Iran, tough luck. But if you're from Ukraine, you'll be treated a little bit more like a human being. That is the very essence of discrimination. You're talking about a bill which would mean if you were a victim of sex trafficking, for instance, and you came here through irregular means, that you wouldn't have access to support from the government's modern slavery scheme. You're basically treated like such a criminal that it doesn't matter that you are being sexually and economically abused and exploited. You're looking at a pill which also wants to basically incarcerate people who are fleeing from war and persecution and other forms of suffering in former military barracks. Now, I think the minute you start talking about locking migrants up in camps, it is wholly appropriate to make comparisons to 1930s Germany. And the reason why it's so meaningful and the reason why it's so powerful is because we do have um, this history in our own continent where we can see this process of dehumanization going through all the steps and ending up in extermination. That's why it's so meaningful. And that's what the phrase never again is about. While the Holocaust is singular, never again is meant to be universal. It's supposed to be a call to action and alertness for all of us to make sure that that process of dehumanization doesn't ever happen again. Now, the reason why it's being litigated in this way, I think, is entirely to do with what's happened in the last few years when it comes to the Labour Party, which is that anti-Semitism is meant to be solely a crime perpetuated by the left. That's why we've had this bizarre subplot this weekend. We've got people like Peter Hitchens claiming that the Nazis were really left wing. That's been a means to delegitimize the left for the past few years. You've got the IHRA definition, which I was against at the time and I'm still against now, where one of the examples is about drawing comparisons between the actions of the state of Israel and the actions of the Nazis. And from that, you get extrapolated a rule, which is to make any sort of comparison with the fascist government 
of the 1930s is seen as to uh, undermine the singularity of the Holocaust and to to be a form of anti-Semitism in itself. So you can see how this disproportionately benefits right-wing governments, right-wing ideologues, right-wing papers, because number one, it means that you are forcing restrictions on people, stopping them from connecting the dots between present-day dehumanization of vulnerable people and the history in Europe of the dehumanization of vulnerable people. And you're setting different rules for the left to play by. You're saying anytime you make these comparisons, you are anti-Semitic. Well, there were plenty of specious and offensive uh, Nazi comparisons being made when it came to Jeremy Corbyn. Alan Sugar tweeted a photo where Jeremy Corbyn was photoshopped in next to Hitler. You know, Momentum and the Labour Party were regularly compared to the Nazis. In fact, you had somebody go on LBC and claim that Jeremy Corbyn wanted to reopen Auschwitz. And none of those things were seen as a form of insulting or denigrating or trivializing the Holocaust, simply because it was using that language to smear and to tarnish and to delegitimize the left. So I think it's it's totally cynical, uh, the way that this is being mobilized. And again, my point isn't uh, oh, anyone should be able to make uh, gratuitous and specious comparisons. But that actually, this is a really meaningful history to draw comparisons with, particularly here in Europe. And that when you see pieces of legislation where you're looking at a group of people and you go, your human rights don't matter, I think it is entirely appropriate to make that comparison. It seems to me to sort of be a little bit elitist is when historical comparisons have to be perfect. Because when I think about what I learned in history in secondary school, Right. I did do A-level and obviously, you know, I work in journalism. So my history knowledge is, is not, it's not great, but it's not appalling. What I learned in history in, in, in secondary school was essentially the Second World War and then some slavery. Both of those are extreme examples from history. But for lots of people, that's going to be, you know, they're the key historical analogies to draw because they're the only bits of history you actually get taught in secondary school. Right. So it, it seems to me, it's like, no, you have to go for something more specific. It's like, well, what if people don't know anything more specific? Then you should not be, make historical comparisons. It seems to me to be rather exclusionary in, in, in terms of public discourse, where you have to have total knowledge of recent history so that you can make perfect comparisons, not clunky ones. Let's go to our next story. Tens of thousands of junior doctors have begun the biggest industrial action by medics in the history of the NHS. The strike is for three days, and the doctors are asking for a 35% pay rise, which sounds like a lot, but it's only what it would take to restore their pay to 2009 levels. Yes, austerity really was that bad. And it's a long-term deep pay cut which has mobilised the profession to pretty extraordinary degrees. The British Medical Association's February ballot resulted in a turnout of nearly 80%, with over 98% of voters opting to strike. Now that is a mandate. That's incredible. Emma Runswick from the BMA appeared on BBC Breakfast this morning. She explained why doctors think the demand of a 35% pay rise is justified. We're looking to reverse pay cuts the pay cuts that have caused doctors to leave the health service and get us into a position where we've already got 7.2 million people on the waiting list. And it's only going to get worse if we don't turn the health service around. Just to be clear what you say, you're saying pay cuts. Is 
because you're saying that over the years, your pay has not kept in, in line with inflation. So overall, the real terms effect is, is your pay has been cut. Yeah, absolutely. So if, if things cost more, but your wages haven't gone up, then you can't afford those things anymore. And for doctors, that's increasingly meaning that you can't afford housing in the places that you work, you can't afford childcare. For those of us who are working ridiculous rotors, we're moved great distances from our families against our will through rotational training. So you can't rely on other people to pick up your kids from school and so on. You're having to pay for overnight childcare. All of these things add up. All of our exams, all of our professional costs have gone up by inflation, but our wages have not. And that's making us all poorer, like many people in this country. I can sense your frustration uh, from the first couple of answers that you've given us here. But what do you say to people, including some senior doctors, who suggest that the pay rise you're asking for is just too big and makes you appear out of touch? Hmm. It's only large because that's how much we've lost. So if you think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of money to get to gain, Which that's only because... people, 35% is what yeah, you're absolutely. asking for. So if you lose 25%, 25 from 100 is 75. If you add 25 again, that's a third of 75. So just mathematically, that's what we're looking to, to regain. The cost is about £1 billion to the government far less than they're spending on a whole variety of other things. They've spent 15 times that written that off on unusable, fraudulent PPE just within the health budget. That's before you get to the spending on, you know, a, a lots of other things. This is a drop in the ocean for the government. They just don't want to spend it on maintaining the staffing of the health service so that we can give the care that patients deserve. That was the perspective of the BMA. What about the government? Well, this was Health Secretary Steve Barclay speaking to Sky News. Uh, we're keen to engage with the junior doctors. We recognise the huge pressure the workforce has been under through the pandemic. Uh, we've made an offer of talks with them to discuss pay on the same basis as we have with the other health unions. Those other health unions have accepted, whether that's the RCN, Unison, GMB, Unite, have been having discussions with government on pay. The junior doctors have chosen not to do so, and I urge them to come and have those discussions with me as a matter of urgency. So the BMA says that offer came at 10 to 10 on Friday. Why was it so late? No, we discussed with them. I had a meeting with them, for example, on the 12th of January, where we talked about the need to look at pay for 23-24. There has been a separate discussion in terms of uh, this year, the 22-23, which was covered by a multi-year uh, PRB, a pay review board uh, decision. So that was closed. We were looking to discuss with them uh, this coming year. Uh, with the other health unions, we have listened to their concerns in terms of this year. That's why with them, we've been discussing this year and next year together as a package. We've made exactly the same offer to the junior doctors, but so far they've refused to engage in those talks. That was Steve Barkley saying, we want to talk, it's the doctors that don't, why can't they come to talks like all the other professions? Um, as you can imagine, doctors dispute that account. This is Rob Lawrenson, co-chair of the BMA's Junior Doctors Committee. When Steve Barkley talks about um, not meeting, you know, we, we wrote to him back in August, seven months ago. And the first time I met him was on the 2nd of March. And what I don't quite understand is on the 24th of February, after our ballot result, a resounding mm. result, which showed 98% of doctors wanted to take the strike action, yeah. we announced our dates on the 24th of February. And then on the 2nd of March, we met 
He told us he didn't have a mandate and had to go back to the Prime Minister. But we've got now the from the 11th, saying, he, you know, saying he does, he, he's willing to talk. Could you not have, to, have talked well, to him on the 11th, on the 12th, on the 13th? So he's not willing to talk. That's the problem. But now you're, you seem not willing to talk. You know, he's, he has, with great respect, made this letter very, very clear that he's willing to talk and it's dated the 11th of March. We're very happy to talk. As I say, August we wrote to him, October we wrote to him, November we met with the Department of Health and Social Care and they told us, until you've got a ballot, until you've got a result, there's no point talking. We've had our ballot, we've mm -hmm. had our result. So and why not in fact, talk? we met with him on the 2nd of March. And we were having a talk. And then he told us he didn't have a mandate. He came back to us Friday night. He sent me an email at 9.49pm asking us to talk when we'd had a meeting with his civil servants earlier that day, which he didn't turn up to. We've gone to many meetings and he's only turned up to one. So for him to come out and say that we're not coming to the table is frankly disingenuous. I think I know who I trust when it comes to those two accounts about what has gone on. Junior doctors make up roughly 45% of the NHS's medical workforce, so the strike is going to be very disruptive for patients, with consultants cancelling their appointments in order to cover shifts in A&E and other departments. And because junior doctors are so essential to the NHS, there have been even more postponements of procedures for this strike than there were for the nurses and ambulance workers' actions. They were earlier in the year. On BBC's Today programme, Michelle Hussain asked Medical Director of the NHS England, or of NHS England, sorry, Stephen Powis, about the impact of the strikes. Can the NHS cope if this is, this is three days already, if this becomes as long-running as the nurses' dispute was before there were different signals? Can the NHS cope? Well, clearly, the more industrial action there is, the greater effect it has. So far this winter, We've already had to reschedule, postpone over 100,000 appointments and procedures. Clearly, as Nick has said, we will need to uh, reschedule more this week. And of course, if there is then further industrial action, that will have uh, another impact. So yes, we would like this uh, dispute, along with the other disputes, resolved as quickly as possible. Those cancellations come in the context of the largest backlog in NHS waiting lists since records began. This graph from the BMA shows a number of patients on NHS waiting lists. There are now over 7 million people waiting to be seen by a consultant. When the Tories took power in 2010, that number had been reduced from 4 million to around 2.5 million. But that figure has tripled in just 12 years of Tory rule. Professor Philip Banfield is chair of the BMA's council. He told Sky News this. It's the refusal of government to listen to junior doctors and the crisis unfolding in the NHS. We had the worst crisis in the NHS that I have ever known, and it's seeing junior doctors leave in their droves. The junior doctor strike is so sad to see, but they feel they have been driven to this. What is going on day in, day out is that patients are dying. The Royal College of Emergency Medicine estimates that between 300 and 500 people are dying unnecessarily because of the state of the emergency departments across the UK per week. That is an absolute national scandal. So 300 to 500 people per week dying because our NHS is under so much stress. Ash, the story here seems very similar to lots of the other public sector strikes. You've got austerity, which has sort of had all of these um, resentments build up over 13 years. And I mean, resentments is to make it sound a bit more emotional than it is. Obviously, there's a, there's a material reality here, which is people have had their wages cut dramatically 
over 13 years. And then the, the inflation we've seen over the past 12 months has sort of been the trigger, which means that people will not take this any longer. Yeah. And I, I was actually talking to a friend of mine yesterday who uh, up until quite recently uh, was a doctor. So apologies if you're watching, because I'm just going to repeat all of the things that you told me yesterday. But I think there are some things about the junior doctor context, which make it a bit unique. So one is that actually, while you do have uh, both overt and stealth forms of privatization within the NHS. So by decimating the NHS's ability to provide certain kinds of care, you basically create a market of people who are turning towards the private sector. Um, private healthcare infrastructure simply isn't developed enough and there isn't enough of it to deal with the entirety of NHS care. So there are two bits where there are, there's basically no um, private involvement whatsoever. One is accident and emergency and private healthcare providers don't want to get involved because it's very expensive and doesn't make you much money. And the other is intensive care for similar reasons. Where you do have people making the leap from NHS and into the private sector, they tend to be um, you know, much more senior in their career. So consultant level and the like. So you've got junior doctors who are entering a work environment where the pay for their work has been devalued over the last 12 years. And you're also having to do more with less, as in we've got an aging population. Uh, we've got a population where healthcare outcomes are worse because of austerity. And you've also got uh, fewer resources to be able to deal with it in terms of adequate staffing capacity, uh, adequate beds capacity. And you're saying, put up with this have a great time. You've trained all these years to do this job, but actually you can't have a kind of standard of living uh, where you can lead a dignified life. And also we're just going to make the experience of working as shit as possible. Um, that is a picture which is replicated across the public sector. You're seeing that kind of thing in education. You're seeing that kind of thing in local councils, social services. One of the really interesting thing about junior doctors, my friend was saying, is if you look at their class position, disproportionately, uh, junior doctors are more likely to come from better off households. Now, of course, that's not going to be everyone, but that is disproportionately the case. And that's because to be a junior doctor, you've got to be in in higher education for a really long time. So you tend to come from a more middle-class background in order to be able to take that on because you're not going in and earning straight away. So you graduate into this workforce where your pay is being cut left, right, and center. The hours you're working are totally grueling. Experience of working is really difficult. And your peers are people who are going into things like the law, or the city or architecture. Um, you don't have a route straight into the private sector because you're not at that higher level, which means that you can just sort of step out of the NHS. And so what do you do? Like the healthcare system loses you entirely. You go into something like research or tech or, um, or pharmaceuticals. So I think that there's something kind of unique here, which is that one, you don't have private infrastructure, which can just sort of step in and monetize uh, what's being um, gutted from the NHS, because you can't do that with emergency care and you can't do that with intensive care. You've got a large sector of, um, I don't want to say better off in terms of pay, but you know more likely to come from middle class backgrounds, whose only real option is to either 
practice medicine in another country or exit the healthcare service entirely. Um, and you've got a, a population who's got no choice but to access uh, care through the NHS um, because of A&E and intensive care. Even if they've got the money to go private, they can't. So I think that junior doctors have um, a fair amount of leverage here. They've got a fair amount of leverage for these kind of unique reasons that I've laid out. But the government is in total denial. The government's in, in total denial about how its own cumulative decision-making has led to this very expensive crisis in NHS care provision. And they don't want to be seen to be reaching into their pockets. Um, same story uh, with the railways. They don't want to be seen reaching into their pockets because they know that if they allow one dispute to win, well, then they're kind of fucked on every front. Next story. While in the UK, we were all focused on the fate of match of the day, over in the US, they've just seen the biggest bank collapse since the 2008 financial crisis. Silicon Valley Bank, or SBB, was the favourite bank of the tech industry. And companies such as Shopify, ZipRecruiter and Pinterest all had millions in SVB accounts. The use of the bank by tech firms meant there were concerns that if the bank went under, it would take some of those firms with them. So if you, you've got your money in this bank and if the bank collapses, then that money disappears. However, what's happened, the US government has now intervened, guaranteeing the deposits of everyone who banks with Silicon Valley Bank. Might sound complicated, don't worry. To explain what the hell is going on, I'm joined by economist and friend of the show, James Meadway. Um, thank you for joining us this evening. Um, a relief I have someone to explain this to me so I didn't have to totally try and get on top of it in a, in a rush this morning. Um, let's start with the basics. What is Silicon Valley Bank and why did it collapse? Okay, well I, I thought you gave a very good start to what's been happening. Silicon Valley Bank's uh, a bank obviously in the US, um, a bank of a kind that we don't have many of in this country in Britain because it's kind of medium-sized. It's the 16th, or it was the 16th largest bank in the US. And it was set up probably 30, 40 years ago, as the name suggests, to offer banking operations. So make lending money, taking deposits, paying out money to uh, companies working in Silicon Valley. And that's where it got most of its business from. It provided these banking functions to companies like that. So basically, it's just a medium-sized bank that had a particular set of customers, particular set of people it marketed to. And that's kind of where the problem started, because the first bit here is that once interest rates started going up, because if you look at the last 10 years, interest rates have been very low. And that's been really good if you are one of the big venture capital funds trying to put money into very speculative tech investments of various sorts, up to and including things like cryptocurrency and lots of mad sort of investments taking place there, things that would never work, that would never fly, that seem very risky, but if interest rates are low, it all makes sense. Once interest rates started going up, and as people have seen over this year, the US tech industry has been really shaken by this, lots of job losses, lots of difficulties. That's one part of the problem for Silicon Valley Bank getting its business from these people. The other bit is what looks like some pretty bad decisions by the bank's management to not really build into their own business model the possibility that one day interest rates might go up. So they've taken out lots and lots of what seemed like good ideas at the time investments. They've taken some of the money that they have and put it into different kinds of investments as a way of sort of insuring themselves against problems at the bank. Turned out that these investments were things that were going to fall in value uh, quite rapidly as interest rates rose, and that left the bank unable 
to then meet the demands being made on it by people saying, we want to take our money out. That's the run on the bank. And of course, you've got to bear in mind that any bank is always at risk of this happening. The way you run a bank is that you don't ever have as much money in your coffers, as it were, as you say you have to the people who have bank accounts. So as long as not everyone turns up all at once demanding their money back, your bank can carry on functioning. If a load of people turn up and say, we don't think you have our money, we want to take that money out, we don't think this is safe anymore, which is what happened to Silicon Valley Bank, you're stuffed. And that's what happened on Friday, and that's what's coming out over the weekend, which is why you had this announcement today from the Federal Reserve, from the US government, saying that we're going to protect the deposits, the money that people have put um, into Silicon Valley Bank, and we're going to make sure that everybody gets their money back. So that's basically the situation as it stands now. Uh, let's look a bit more at that US government decision. So as James said there, they've stepped in on Friday, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the FDIC um, took control of the company's assets, and they've now guaranteed customers deposits. So that's what's reassured people who, who bank with Silicon Valley Bank and other medium sized banks where there was a worry that, you know, this could be um, to some degree contagious. Um, President Biden this morning set out the nature of the move. First, all customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured. I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills and stay open for business. No losses will be, and I want this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Instead, the money will come from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. Because of the actions of that, because of the actions that our regulators have already taken, every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. Second, the management of these banks will be fired. If the bank is taken over by FDIC, the people running the bank should not work there anymore. Third, investors in the banks will not be protected. They knowingly took a risk, and when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. And fourth, there are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. In my administration, no one, in my no one is above the law. So Biden there sounded very keen to stress that this was not a taxpayer-funded bailout and that it was the customers of the bank, not its managers or investors, that would be getting a helping hand. And the obvious sort of undertone there was this isn't a, a rerun of the 2008 bank bailout. Um, James, is he right? Is, is this not a, a bailout like what we saw in, in 2008, where basically it's socialism for the rich and capitalism for everyone else? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, he's right. It's not 2008. The scale of what's happening here is much smaller. The Silicon Valley Bank is what the 16th largest bank. It was the 16th largest bank in the US. Lehman Brothers at the time was you know the fourth largest investment bank on the planet back in 2008 when it failed. So the scale of this is just very very much smaller. The other banks that have been hit by this panic because this is the key to a bank run is that you have a bunch of customers at one bank saying, "Oh dear." The situation that my bank has got into, interest rates have gone up. That means uh, its various investments aren't paying out. That means my money isn't safe. You're at another bank. You can think, well, my bank's like that. So my money isn't safe. I need to get it out. So you have all these other smaller banks, which America has actually quite a large number, also getting hit by this. But they're smaller. They're not big you know, multinational investment banks like we saw in 2008. So the situation is different like that. 
The difficulty with it is that you then have to think about, well, who are these people or these companies that have put their deposits into a bank uh, like Silicon Valley Bank? And of course, actually, for most people in America, whatever bank you've got, you're, you're protected. You've got up to $250,000 the US government basically guarantees whichever institution you're in. Similar thing in Britain, it's £85,000 you're guaranteed by the government, whichever institution you bank with. The problem with Silicon Valley Bank is you just have these companies about 3,000 or so, that uh, had very, very large amounts of money just sitting there, venture-backed companies, huge amounts of capital sitting there, and that wasn't going to be protected. So in fact, you're saying, okay, it's not really a bailout. Sure, we're not going to just bail out the people who run the bank. We're not going to bail out the people who invest in the bank, from what Biden says. But there is a degree to which this is a bank who is offering services for a particular set of people who, when things start getting difficult, their losses are being protected. There's a more fundamental problem here, which is that the way banking systems sort of supposed to work is there a degree to which we anticipate, and we're all supposed to think like this, we're all supposed to anticipate that once your money gets so big, the government isn't going to protect you anymore, you're supposed to have a better appreciation of the risks uh, involved in you putting your money in a bank. So it's part of the entire structure of investment in capitalism is how you might manage those risks. What the federal government in the US has just done is really something potentially quite dramatic, which is to change how the entire structure of banking works to sort of get out of the hole on Monday morning. So this may well have quite long-term consequences. Most immediately, of course, the thing that people are talking about is that because this shock has happened, because this bank has failed, because of the risk to the whole system, because you can see banking shares in the US have really sort of taken a tumble uh, since markets opened this morning, the Federal Reserve might not start putting up interest rates quite as much as it said it would. So that whole process of interest rates are going up and this is a new inflationary environment we'll all have to be in, all this sort of stuff, that starts to, look, that starts to shift. So there could be potentially some quite long-term impacts of all of this. As of right now, it doesn't look like we're going to suddenly plunge into another 2008 moment. Let's look at the UK end of this. So there was a UK arm of Silicon Valley Bank, and that has now been bought by HSBC for one pound. Um, so maybe a bargain, um, maybe not. I'll be asking James Meadway in a moment. First of all, let's see what Jeremy Hunt had to say about the deal. A number of our most promising and important technology and life science companies had their money with Silicon Valley Bank in their UK branch. So we've been working over the weekend. I've been in constant contact with the Governor of the Bank of England, uh, the Prudential Regulatory Authority, uh, the Prime Minister, to work up a solution. Uh, we do now have that solution. A sale has been agreed to HSBC, which is Europe's biggest bank, one of the most creditworthy institutions in the world. And what that means is that all those really important companies that had deposits with Silicon Valley Bank UK can access their deposits, uh, can access normal banking services as of this morning. It's a very important outcome. No taxpayer's money has been used. And I think it's a result of a lot of hard work. But I also think it shows that the UK has uh, great resilience in its financial system, that we're able to step in with one of our biggest UK banks in a situation like this and protect a very important sector. Jeremy Hunt, people seem to think he's a reassuring figure for the markets. He always looks a bit like he's in a hostage video. That's not my question to you, though. Um, he said this rescue shows the resilience in the UK financial system. And I suppose also, could you, I mean, maybe back to basics, why would HSBC mm. buy a crumbling bank for a pound? What's what, Why is that a good idea? Well, because it's not, it's not really, as far as anyone can tell, the subsidiary of uh, Silicon Valley Bank over here in the UK wasn't uh, crumbling in quite the same way. There was, coming into the weekend, some evidence of a bank run as well, that a lot of 
institutions uh, that banked with Silicon Valley Bank UK, which again is the same, it offered the same kind of thing. It was meant to be the tech bank and the fintech bank and all that sort of thing, you know, the usual sort of uh, tech bubble blah, uh, offering those services to those companies in this country. And news from the US was causing a bit of a panic. It was losing a lot of money. It was starting to look quite serious. It was starting to look to the point, as Jeremy Hunt was saying, they had to step in to stop it going under, to stop this bank, which provided banking services to all these tech companies collapsing. And when that happens, by the way, you suddenly like your bank account's frozen, you can't pay anyone, right? So it's quite serious. Um, so they had to move in to do that. But if you look at how the bank was being run, it hadn't got itself into quite such a bad situation on its own investments. It wasn't so exposed to these interest rate rises, so it actually looked a lot more viable. And for HSBC's point of view, and this is a truly vast bank, this is one of the biggest on the planet, this looked like a complete bargain where you can snap up lots and lots of nice bank customers, you get a bit of that sort of feel-good tech investment stuff, you get to look like the good guys stepping in uh, and doing the right thing and all this sort of, it's all quite good, and a complete bargain at one pound, of course, Significantly, the government had to make some offers to HSBC, like, for instance, it wouldn't fall foul of various anti-money laundering uh, sort of institutions and schemes and procedures. It's important for HSBC to have that. In the past, it's had terrible trouble with being used for money laundering. So it had to, the government had to offer a few other things as well to sweeten the deal. But this can be presented as something of a win-win right now. Final bit, of course, is that look, this is something that in Britain, the structure of how our banks work, how our banking system is, not really the same as US. We've got you know four or five really big banks and then almost nothing else. Silicon Valley Bank was pretty unusual. So these big banks are all lumbering around doing their thing. They're the ones that really collapsed in 2008, had to be bailed out, all that sort of stuff. We don't have those medium-sized banks that are currently under such trouble in the US. So of course, it's going to look a bit better over here. We just don't have the same exposure to the same kind of risks as in the US. Things look better, not because of what Jeremy Hunt's done, not because of anything the government's done, just because over a very long period of time, we've ended up with a banking system that's very heavily concentrated in the few giant banks and doesn't have those smaller at-risk banks in the same way that the US has. Final story. Fiona Bruce is to stand down as ambassador to the charity Refuge after claims she trivialised domestic violence on Question Time last week. The row relates to this exchange. An audience member had asked whether Boris Johnson was right to knight his father. Ex-Tory minister Ken Clark and journalist Yasmin Alibi-Brown responded. I rather like Stanley Johnson. He's like most of the family. He's quite fun. Uh, and he's, he has been a politician. He's been quite active a politician. He was an MEP, quite a good... And he doesn't share his son's current views on Brexit either. He's pro-European. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with Stanley. The one person who should not recommend him for a period, for a knighthood, is his son. But Boris has been a little insensitive. <laughs> Actually, Ken... He was a wife beater, Stanley Johnson, on record. Um, OK, let me, just, let me just intervene. I'm not, I'm not disputing what you're saying, but just so everyone knows what this is referring to. So Stanley Johnson's uh, wife spoke to a journalist, Tom Bauer, and she said that Stanley Johnson had broken her nose and, and she had ended up in hospital as a result. Stanley Johnson has not commented publicly on that. Friends of his have said it did happen, it was a one-off. Yes, but it did happen. Anyway... So many people took that, that her saying it did happen, but it was a one-off as sort of trivialising or doing down the, the significance of, of domestic violence. Um, Fiona Bruce has released this statement. I have been a passionate advocate and campaigner for all survivors of domestic abuse and have used my privileged position as a woman in the public eye to bring this issue to the fore, notably in my work for over 25 years with Refuge. But following the events of last week, I have faced a social media storm, much of which mischaracterised what I said and took the form of personal abuse directed at me. 
The only people that matter in all this are the survivors. They are my priority. The last thing in the world that I would want is that this issue in any case, in any way creates a distraction from refugees' critical work on their behalf. And therefore, I think the right thing to do is to step back from my role with refuge. This has been a hard decision for me as I feel so strongly about promoting their work and advancing awareness of this issue. I will continue to be an active supporter albeit from the sidelines for now. Um, Refuge have also released a statement. On Friday, we issued a statement in response to the comments read out by Fiona Bruce the previous evening in her role as host of BBC Question Time. Refuge's position was and remains clear. Domestic abuse is never a one-off. It is a pattern of behaviour that can manifest in a number of ways, including but not limited to physical abuse. Domestic abuse is never acceptable. Over the weekend, we have been listening to and heard survivors of domestic abuse who have told us how devastating this has been for them. While we know the words were not Fiona's own and were words that she was legally obliged to read out, this does not lessen their impact and we cannot lose sight of that. These words minimise the seriousness of domestic abuse and this has been re-traumatising for survivors. Survivors of domestic abuse are and will always be refuge's priority. Our focus must remain on them. Every two minutes, someone turns to refuge for help, and our priority is the women and their children who need us. We have today accepted Fiona's offer to stand down from her role as ambassador for refuge. We have thanked her for her considerable contribution over many years to refuge and the wider domestic abuse agenda. Um, Ash, difficult one, this. I mean, I suppose, you know, context for the audience, Fiona Bruce, one of her responsibilities as chair of, of Question Time is to put forward any legal clarification. So if you've got unscripted guests who are sort of telling their opinions about people, then when they get mentioned to avoid the show being accused of you know, being subject to legal challenge, she has to say, well, these are the facts as we currently know them. Um, you're free to express your opinions. It, it, you know, Refuge seemed to be accepting she was reading out something the show gave her, you know, the legal document or whatever, but she still resigned. Um, and lots of people were still, I think, understandably upset that that statement did seem to trivialise domestic abuse. I mean, where do you stand on this? So look, I think when it came to having to issue a legal clarification, Fiona Bruce did her job, which is Yasmin Alibi-Brown said he's a wife beater. Fiona Bruce said this is the context and that is entirely the correct thing to do. You would have to do that. I would have to do it. The thing which was particularly badly handled, and I accept that this isn't entirely the fault of Fiona Bruce, I think it's almost certain that a producer was speaking to her through an earpiece and supplied the words which she used. The thing that was really badly handled is that you end on that note, which has been put out by supporters of Stanley Johnson's, his friends, where they acknowledge that an act of violence did happen, that Boris Johnson's mother was hospitalized with a broken nose. And the last thing you hear is, but it was a one-off. Now, that language is trivializing of domestic violence. It just is. A way in which you could phrase it, which would still be giving the viewer the relevant facts, which would still be within um, the legal constraints that exist when you're talking about something where there hasn't been um, a caution being issued or a conviction secured in a court. As you could say, friends of Stanley Johnson say that it did happen. It never happened again, right? That's a lot less minimizing, a lot less trivializing. It conveys the same facts and it leaves the viewer to form their own judgment and their opinion of what happened. So I think that this was something which was uh, very badly handled by 
both Fiona Bruce and the producer who supplied the language. And ultimately, if they thought that something like this was going to come up and they knew in advance that there would be a question about Stanley Johnson, um, they must have thought that this is something which would be raised, not just the allegation of domestic violence against Boris Johnson's mother, but the fact that there have been multiple allegations of uh, groping uh, levied against him, one uh, from a new statesman journalist, I believe, and another from Caroline Noakes, a Conservative MP. That that language would have been thought about in advance so that when it was applied to Fiona Bruce, it could tread that line of um, not being uh, libelous or defamatory, but also not being trivializing, dismissive or uh, minimizing. But I think there is maybe something which is a bit uncomfortable here, which is I think that maybe there is a tension between being a journalist, being a presenter, having to walk that line and being someone who wants to be at the forefront of campaigning for an organisation like Refuge. What we know is that domestic violence is underreported. What we know is that it can often be really difficult to secure Uh, police action or a conviction for issues of intimate partner violence and that the law as it exists when it comes to things like libel and defamation can often be manipulated and exploited by abusers in order to protect themselves from accountability or indeed to continue the abuse. And so I think that when you have a role where you're having to both um, abide by the law as it presently exists when it comes to things like defamation but you also have this awareness of how things like defamation law might be used uh, in order to shield abusers from accountability there is perhaps an irreconcilable tension between those two things and it doesn't matter how good your intentions are maybe you can't ride both horses at once um the last thing that i want to say and this is specific uh, to stanley johnson is that the world of British political media and the political establishment, it's governed by these rules, which aren't written down, they're not codified, they're not formalised, nobody has to talk about them, but they exist. And so you have these characters like Stanley Johnson, where there is a litany of allegations in his wake, and yet it seems to never negatively impact his status. He's sort of seen as one of the gang. I'm sure he'll be uh, an, a, a panelist on Question Time and Any Questions and various BBC programs in the future, just as he has done multiple times in the past. I'm sure that he'll have no shortage of people talking about what a good chap he is and what good fun and all the rest of it. He's simply seen as, as, as part of the social milieu. And so even though there are all of these uh, very credible allegations, like there have been incredible, uh, there's been a credible allegation of groping um, against Boris Johnson by uh, the journalist Charlotte Edwards, it's just sort of memory hold. It's sort of confined to that bit of the periphery that no one has to directly look at or um, address in a meaningful way. The allegations come out, you discuss it for a day, and then it's promptly ignored, never to be mentioned ever, ever again. And I think that that is um, a a, a totally messed up media culture. It's a uh, totally messed up way to treat 
allegations and to think about accountability where ultimately if you kind of like somebody it doesn't matter um and i think that that's part of what allows people to behave very very badly including uh, but not limited to being abusive or uh, sexually inappropriate with people who are more vulnerable than you we're gonna have to end there ash thank you so much for joining me this evening thanks for having me i know you keep trying to shunt me off to other presenters michael but i'll come crawling back you're going to need a restraining order to get rid of me thank you everyone for watching um the show will be back tomorrow at 6 p.m for now you've been watching navara media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navara media go to navaramedia.com support